Genesis chapter 2, we started last week, I think, yeah, just last week, a series on, and it will be a short series, it's not going to be as long as some we've done, but a series on the great stories of the Old Testament, and uh, last week we talked about creation, this week we're going to continue that discussion as we look uh, in Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse number 1. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, before any plant of the field was in the earth and before any herb of the field had grown, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, And there was no man to till the ground, but a mist went up from the ground and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four riverheads. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Hittichel. It is the one which goes toward the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused the deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman. And he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife. And we're not ashamed. Father God, thank you for your word. Speak to our hearts now as we uh, look into it just a little bit. I pray, Father, you'd fill me with your spirit. Forgive me for anything that would hinder my usefulness to you right now. And uh, just help me, Lord, to just uh, say what I should and nothing more. Uh, Just use this time and speak to us, I pray, about these important issues. These issues which are so important to our culture and our day. And so uh, speak to us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the first story that we looked at last week in Genesis chapter 1, we spoke about how God created everything, and we were given a very detailed explanation 
of how he created everything and, and just how he went about that process. We learned several key truths. For example, we learned that God created absolutely everything that is or ever has been simply by willing it into existence, by speaking it into existence. Secondly, we learned that God did all of that. He created everything in six days, six literal 24-hour days. He didn't require eons of time or millions of years of evolution. He did it all in six days. We learned that the Hebrew word yom, translated day in our Bible, literally means a 24-hour day, just as we think of today when we use the word day. We also learned that the phrase, the evening and the morning, when properly interpreted, speaks of the same thing, a 24-hour day. And so he created everything in six 24-hour days. The third thing we learned was that when God created the various plant life and animal life on the planet, he created it to reproduce and limited that reproduction to reproducing only according to its kind. In other words, he created the various distinctions between species or kinds and so created them that they can only reproduce within that kind. A dog can only produce a dog. And we went into some detail on that. There's no crossing over from one to the other. And finally, we learned that when God was finished with his creation, at the end of the sixth day, he pronounced it all good. Actually, very good. So now we come to chapter 2. And we're told here what God did on the seventh day. But before we look into that and, and, and talk about exactly what he did, I, I want to share a thought, uh, which has nothing to do with the sermon. It's just a thought that comes to my mind, which is this. I don't think that chapter 2 should start where chapter 2 starts in our Bible. I think that those first three verses there should actually be the, the conclusion of chapter 1. In chapter 1, we have this complete running commentary of day 1, day 2, day 3, day 4, day 5, day 6. And for some reason, day 7 is bumped down to chapter 2. Uh, it doesn't make sense. It flows with the first chapter. And in verse number 4, this is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created. That phrase, this is the history, is used throughout Genesis to introduce a new section or a new thought. And so if I was one of the ones who was determining where the chapter and verse divisions should go, I would have changed that. Uh, and it's important to remember that the chapters and verses are not inspired in our Bible. Uh, they are not in the original manuscripts whatsoever. They were added by scholars, thankfully, because they're extremely helpful. Uh, but they are not, uh, they're not inspired by God. And so that's just my opinion. You can take that for whatever you want. It has nothing to do with the sermon. I just toss it out there uh, for your edification. So at first glance, we might, be cons we might consider chapter 2 to be a repeat of chapter 1. They both seem to be talking about creation, and they both seem to be uh, giving an account of it. Some would even say that chapter 2 is a complete and separate account of of creation, but I don't think that's it. I think it's an explanation and an expansion of what we already saw in chapter one. And, and actually, I think predominantly it is an explanation and an expansion of what happened on day six in chapter one. That first chapter gave us this detailed account of every day, and now this second chapter expands on certain details and helps us to understand just what happened there. And primarily, it has to do with God's creation of us, of mankind. And, and fleshing that out, and uh, his subsequent instructions as well on to how they were to, uh, uh, to, to, to live here on this new creation. So while chapter 1 might be considered an account of first things, I think chapter 2 more fully describes how God ordered their lives 
after that creation. And so, uh, for, for lack of a better title today, uh, I think this is describing the first order of things. Chapter 1, first things, chapter 2, first order. So let's notice a couple of ways in which God ordered his new creation. First of all, I think there's something here about God's order uh, in our relationship to him. God's order in our relationship to him. The chapter starts with a very important sentence. Chapter 2 and verse number 1, that's the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. You might want to underline that in your Bible. Finished. Because it's another death blow to those who would try to fit evolution into the creation account. It it was finished. The Bible plainly states that at the end of day 6, everything was done. Nothing needed yet to evolve. Nothing else was yet to be created. It was all done. One man said, and I think he's correct, he said, no permanent change has ever since been made in the course of the world. No new species of animals have been formed. No law of nature repealed or added to. And so it's finished. But then in verse number two, God's activity on that final day of creation, uh, day number seven is described. On day seven, God, uh, his work of creation being done, rested. Rested. Yesterday, Brother Bruce Wagner and I spent uh, several hours out back with a monstrous pile of branches and stuff, chipping that up. Bruce Wagner is a slave driver. It was, it was, it was not a good experience for me. And I finally had to look at him and say, Bruce, I'm done, man. <laughs> I'm wore out. I'm just completely shot. And I went home and just sat in my chair for about an hour. I needed to rest. But that's not exactly what happened here with God. God doesn't need to rest like we do. God doesn't get tired. It wasn't referring to exhaustion or weariness in the omnipotent God. Here's what it's referring to. It referred simply to his, the cessation of his activity in creating. He wasn't tired. The prophet Isaiah said, Have you not known, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. This was not about him needing to rest like I needed to rest yesterday, or like any of us need to rest when we get weary. It means that he ended his work of creation. And then he did something else. He set apart, he sanctified the seventh day and made it special. Literally, that means he made it holy. The Sabbath was instituted and was associated from the very beginning with the concept of rest. Therefore, the Jews observed the seventh day of the calendar week, Saturdays, as a day of Rest, the Sabbath. If you go to Jerusalem with us sometime, you'll discover that even the elevators don't run on the Sabbath day. Uh, It is a day of rest. When God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, he included the command to remember, to hallow, to set as holy the Sabbath day, the seventh day. And so the Jews still to this day hallow it. And they still observe it and set it aside. After the formation of the church... On the day of Pentecost, the infant church continued to set aside one day in seven. They changed it from the seventh day, Saturday, to the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, as it's referred to in the New Testament. And that was an observance of the fact Jesus rose from the dead on that day. But even though the observance changed from Saturday to Sunday, they still honored one day, set aside one day in seven, as as God said to do here. There's an argument, and, and you've heard it, and I've heard it, and we've all heard it preached. It goes something like this. Jesus repeated nine of the Ten Commandments, 
in the New Testament in his preaching and teaching. He left out only one commandment, and that was the commandment to remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. So that commandment has no place for Christians today. Have you ever heard anybody preach that? It's taught quite a bit in our day. But notice something. God's hallowing of the Sabbath and declaring it holy comes here on day seven of creation, uh, long before the institution of the Ten Commandments, long before the institution of the law. It's not a matter of law that we honor one day in seven, but rather a recognition of God's original order, of his providing us that day. And he did provide us that day as a wonderful gift. The first thing I see here concerning God's order in our relationship with him is, is the Sabbath. It's about resting in him. It's about following his example on day number seven. And as we see the topic develop throughout the rest of Scripture, we've become increasingly aware that it's about worship, worshiping him. And so I'm convinced that we only hurt ourselves when we ignore the Sabbath, or in our case, the Lord's Day. Jesus said in Mark chapter 2 and verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. He set aside that day for us. He made it for us. It wasn't a matter of speaking his last creative act. Another reason I think it ought to be part of chapter 1. It was his last creative act. He created this special day. There's another thought here concerning God's order and our relationship with him. And it's in verses 16 and 17. Look there with me. Verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for then day that you eat of it you shall surely die. He had given them everything. They would never want for anything, ever. But they had to trust him about something. They had to trust that when he said there was this one tree that they were not to eat from, he meant it for their good. You see, this was a matter of obedience. It was a matter of trust. It was a matter of faith in him. And by the way, notice what it says about this tree. It was called the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So-called, as one man said, because it was a test of obedience by which our first parents were to be tried, whether they would be good or bad, obey God, or break his commands. The tree of knowledge of good and evil, that's what the Bible says about it. Now notice what the Bible does not say about it. I don't know if you notice this or not. Did anybody notice? Can you find for me the word apple anywhere in that text? Can you find it there? The Bible does not say apple, does it? This was not an apple tree, as, a, uh, as so many have taught. <laughs> I don't know where that came from, but it was a specific and a unique tree designed for this one single purpose. It was not an apple tree. That's a silly and incorrect thing that's come from somewhere. I don't know. There's not one word of scriptural evidence of that. As a matter of fact, the fruit didn't matter at all. The fruit, I mean, we know it must have looked tasty because it attracted Eve, but it doesn't matter what the fruit was. It doesn't matter what kind of leaves it had. It doesn't matter what the height of it was. or you know, the, the, It doesn't matter anything about its structure or its appearance or make it. All that was irrelevant. What only thing that mattered was the command that was attached to it. Verse 16 is the first reference to a commandment. And the first use of the Hebrew word translated command. God commanded them to not eat from that tree. I was listening to Ravi Zacharias. 
And I, I encourage you to do that, but I also encourage you, if you're going to sit down in front of YouTube and start watching Ravi Zacharias, you better give yourself some time because you'll get sucked in and you'll be watching him for hours. But uh, anyway, I was watching him, and he, he made mention of this verse, and he made mention of the fact that in the beginning there was only one command. I guess I'd never thought of it that way. There was only one command in the beginning. The Ten Commandments were later given by God on Mount Sinai, and those ten were later expanded into the 613 that are considered central to Judaism today. In the United States today, I tried to look up how many laws we have in this country. Anybody know how many laws we have in this country? Nobody seems to know how many laws we have in this country. There are so many that we cannot even count them. I I found one source that said there are at least... 20,000 laws on the books just concerning the use of firearms. Just that one topic. 20,000 laws. But all that nonsense came later. The multiplied thousands of rules and regulations that mankind has had to come up with that we deal with today all sprang from this one command. If we had but obeyed this one command, there would have never been a need for any other. Notice verse number 9, out of the ground, the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God had provided everything Adam needed for his pleasure, everything that was pleasant to the sight, and everything that he needed for his sustenance, everything that was good for food. All he had to do was trust him, have faith in him, faith enough to obey that one command. So, I think God's order in our relationship to him here is seen in two things. It's seen in the Sabbath and in the commandment. They were to worship him and rest in him, and they were to trust him and have faith in him by obeying his one command. Moving on, we see God's order in our relationship with others. I think that's the second half of this passage. God's order in our relationship with others. And it all started with gender. How appropriate that is to our day. It all started with gender. It all started with the family. It all started with a marriage. God's basic order for relationships centered around those concepts. We come to verse number 18. And the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. And immediately we notice a change occurring. In chapter 1, we read God declaring over and over and over that it was good. After everything that he had completed, after every day of creation, it was good, it was good, it was good. Everything was not only good, but very good. In verse number 31, here we come to Genesis 2.18, and the first thing we notice is this jarring, it is not good. It is not good. As we said, Adam had everything he needed to sustain his life. He had everything he needed to provide him pleasure and joy. He had purpose. He had meaningful work. He had been placed in a wonderful garden where he is occupied with tending it and keeping it. But Adam was alone. And that lack loomed large in his life. So God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the air, verse 19. Actually, the word formed there would be better translated had formed because the creation of those things took place during the six days of creation. This is just expanding on that. By the time Adam was here, all that was done. And God now brought them all to Adam to see what he would call them. And you have to kind of use your imagination here, but certainly as these pairs of animals were paraded in front of Adam, he must have noticed something. Don't you think you would notice something? Adam was smarter than all of us, but 
I think we would have even noticed it. He must have noticed right off that there were differences between the two. Plumbing differences, if nothing else. And some of them looked stronger and some of them looked softer. He had to have noticed this. Perhaps he looked at one and said, I will call this one lion and this one lioness. Perhaps he noticed these things. And so on as each pair paraded before him. He must have, he must have noticed as he was seeing and naming all the animals that even though there was two of each, there was only one of him. And he must have noticed that there was something missing in his life. They all had mates. He did not. They each had another one comparable to themselves, alongside of themselves. He did not. He was alone. And that, God said, was not good. So God made woman. And the process by which he made her, I think, is very interesting. Adam had been formed from the dust of the earth. Verse number Seven, And then given a spiritual dimension when God breathed into his nostrils a breath of life. Also verse number 7. Eve was not formed directly from the dust of the earth. Eve was formed from the flesh of Adam. God took a rib from Adam while he slept and made that into a woman. Verse number 22. And when Adam awoke from his sleep, he was no longer alone. There was this beautiful, gorgeous, wonderful creation standing there, smiling at him. And Adam was smitten from the first. He gave her a name, just like he gave to everything else. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Verse 23, in the Hebrew that reads, she shall be called Isha, for she was taken out of Ish. Ish and Isha. There's a good description that's been, you've, you've all heard it, I'm sure, of what happened here. We've, we've heard it many times, but I think it bears repeating here. I don't know where it first came from. She was not made out of his head to surpass him, nor from his feet to be trampled on, but from his side to be equal to him and near his heart to be dear to him. Now, there are many firsts in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Actually, every bit of these chapters is describing some kind of first. We've already seen the first sunrise. We've seen the first day, the first sky, the first bird, the first fish, the first animal, the first man, and now the first woman. And then right after that, we see another first, the first wedding. God brought the woman to the man, and they became one, a unified and complete whole, verse 24. And there was no sin in any of this, verse 25. Now, verse 24 is arguably the most important verse in all of the Bible related to marriage. It is the first mention of marriage. That fact alone makes it something you ought to underline in your Bibles. Jesus quoted this verse when he was questioned about marriage and, and, and explaining the importance of the marriage relationship. His answer made it clear that this verse goes far beyond Adam and Eve. And, of course, we just look at it, and we know it has to go beyond Adam and Eve because they didn't have parents, and it speaks specifically about parents in there. No, this verse describes the first order, the institution of marriage. Jesus said, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So he quoted this passage. The Apostle Paul did the same thing in Ephesians chapter 5, teaching that it was the foundational truth about marriage, upon which every other truth concerning marriage is built. So let me make a couple comments about marriage just as we consider that verse. When I look at this verse, here's some things I see. 
I see that it starts with the man. I see that it starts with the man. In our culture, you know, the wedding is all about the bride. Everything is about the bride. She's central. It's her day. The Bible tells me here that marriage starts with the man. He is to leave his father and mother. Now, not in the sense of abandoning his responsibilities to them, but in the sense of switching allegiances. His allegiance is no longer there. His priorities are no longer there. Parents are no longer the primary relationship in adulthood. For the man, his allegiance now is to his wife. M.R. Hahn told about a young husband who forgot he was married. Let me just read what he said. He said, according to the newspaper account, his bride became very upset and burned their dinner the night after their honeymoon. Her first flop was understandable, however, because her mate was three hours late in getting home from the office. He had absentmindedly failed to recall that he was married and had gone to his mother's suburban house instead. Not good. The man is to leave his father and his mother. And he is then to be joined to his wife. So says our new King James. I will forever prefer the King James rendering of this particular verse because it says that a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife. And they too shall be one flesh. Leaving and cleaving. They are such picturesque terms, such descriptive terms describing the basics of marriage. And as a husband, I confess that it feels a bit daunting that all of this was put on Adam's plate. The husband is the one that will do the leaving, and the husband is the one who is to do the cleaving, at least according to this verse. And this verse is the first mention of marriage. And we know from our study of principles of biblical interpretation that whenever you see the first reference to something in Scripture, it gives you God's mind on the thing. So husbands, think about this. Think about this. It's mildly horrifying. You are the one who is to ensure your allegiance has switched from mom and dad to wife. She alone is your priority on this earth now above all others. And you are the one who is to do the cleaving. No matter what comes along, no matter what Satan throws in your path, brings in, tries to drive you apart, no matter what she does, you are to hang on. Cleave to her. And never let her go. Are you making weird faces? What are you doing? (laughs) See what I have to cleave to? (laughs) We have our daily breads out there on the, on the, on the, uh, our book rack out on the foyer. I encourage you to take one of those if you don't ever use the, the, our daily bread. It's a wonderful little devotional. Some time ago in the daily bread, there was a story told of a couple named William and Mary Tanner. Let me read that one to you. William and Mary were crossing a railroad track some years ago when Mary's foot slipped and became wedged between the rail and a wooden crosswalk. Frantically, she tried to get loose as the train approached around the curve. Her husband attempted to free her. As the express came closer with its brakes screeching, Mary realized it couldn't stop in time. Leave me, Bill. Leave me, she cried. Seeing his efforts were useless, he arose quickly and held her in his arms to protect her as much as possible. And while bystanders shuddered in horror, the train thundered over them. It was reported that just before the engine hit them, they heard the brave man cry, I'll stay with you, Mary. 
That's cleaving. That's cleaving. Adam and Eve were the first couple, the first family. God's order for us all started with gender. It all started with that family. It all started with a marriage. God's basic order for relationships between people centers around that. Is it any wonder then that our adversary, the devil, works so hard to dismantle that? Is it any wonder why that is what is so under attack and has been under attack? We're going to see it in chapter 3 next week and right up until today. It was not messed up at first. It is messed up today because of what Satan has done, and we'll see that next week. But it was not so at first. It was not so by design. Notice that there was not a word here about Adam being the head of his family and Eve being in submission to Adam. Those kind of words weren't necessary. Each simply function alongside the other. Perfect harmony as a unit. Those roles were just fulfilled as a natural part of their lives. And and while verse 25 means exactly what it says, it is in a broader sense. Perfect description of that first marriage. Innocent, perfect, complete, beautiful, fulfilling, and joyous, and pure. So God's order in our relationship with him is seen in the Sabbath and in the commandment. They were to worship him and rest in him, and they were to trust him and have faith in him by obeying his one command. And God's order for our relationships with each other all started with gender, it all started with family, it all started with a marriage. Stated another way, God's design and order for mankind included faith toward him and fidelity toward family. Faith and family in that order. And that order has never changed. Father God, we thank you for your word. I pray this is helpful, and I pray, Lord, you'll help us all to look into our own hearts and lives and determine if there's anything that's been learned here today where we need to make some sort of commitment or change. I pray, first of all, Lord, that all of us would look at whether or not we're obedient, Lord, to you, whether or not we are putting our faith in you. Such a simplistic uh, method of placing faith was, was mentioned in, that, in the garden. All they had to do was just obey one simple command. And yet you've made it equally simple for us today. All we need to do is place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Believe what he did on the cross of Calvary. That's the faith you ask of us today. And so Lord, I pray if there's anybody who hasn't done it, Lord, as we sing, may they uh, fly to this altar. May they near, kneel here before you and trust Jesus as their Savior. If they have questions, I pray they'd come anyway. Let someone who can help them pray with them and answer those questions. Lord, may we have the right relationship with you. And then, Lord, I pray for our relationships with each other. I pray for the marriages in this room. Pray, Lord, for the husbands. Lord, we take our roles seriously. We would take the lead in leaving our father and mother and resetting our priorities to Make our allegiance be first and foremost and always to our wives. And help us, Lord, to cleave to her no matter what. I pray if there's anyone who's struggling with any of those things, that, Lord, you'd help them today. Lord, if some need to come and pray, if couples need to come and pray, if if anybody needs to just pray together right where they are, Lord, may we today think about these things. Your order, your first order, faith in you, fidelity 
with family. Uh, Lord, we just pray you'd help us to be right in those areas. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.